Hello everyone and uh, welcome to this side event on the Convention on Cluster Munitions Considerations for the Pacific. My name is Matilda and I'm from SafeGround, an Australian NGO, and I'm joining today from the Pacific uh, in Melbourne, which is on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I would like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and also acknowledge their connection to land, water and culture. I feel like this really ties into SafeGround's our mandate around making unsafe ground safe again and is in fact you know really relevant to the cluster munitions convention its goals universalization and considerations in the pacific so safe ground is very happy to be hosting this side event along with our co-sponsor the new zealand mission and we have our charlotte uh, who will be representing them and is one of our panelists today as well and we hope that this discussion highlights how the Pacific can be engaged in the Cluster Munitions Convention by looking at universalization and also interplay with other issues pertinent to the Pacific. Uh, and so to begin our session today, we actually have a pre-recorded video from researcher Annie Quay, who is from the Solomon Islands and is currently based in Papua New Guinea. So Annie is pursuing her doctorate through the Australian National University on history, culture and gender discourse in the Solomon Islands. She's a board member of the culture, uh, sorry, of the Solomon Scouts and Coast Watchers Trust and author of Solomon Islands in World War II, an Indigenous Perspective. So I'm going to share her video message uh, for us with you all now. So just bear with me one moment. First of all, I'm so honored to be part of this panel. Thank you so much, Mete, for inviting me to be um, part of this discussion. I wish to state that I do not represent the government of Solomon Islands, nor speak of the policies or legislations that are in place or pending. The views expressed here are solely mine as a private citizen. I'd like to bring you back to a couple of events that happened recently in Honiara. On September 2020, two members of the Norwegian People's Aid Program were killed while attempting to uh, safely detonate a UXO while on duty in a residential area in Honiara. About eight months later, in May of this year, another UXO exploded in another residential area nearby. This one happened during a local youth, um, local church youth group gathering, who lit a fire outdoor for cooking, and it triggered the ordinance, unknown to anyone, buried beneath for um, 70 years or so to um, to explode, claiming two lives. I personally have a young nephew who was killed by a UXO in the Floridas, uh, driven by his curiosity of what would happen if he put the ordinance in a fire. Tragically, it exploded and shot right through the center of his body, killing him instantly. The reality is that these are only few of many incidences that occur because of the issue of UXO in Solomon Islands. These incidences highlight the need for Solomon Islands to ratify the Convention on Cluster Munitions. The main issue is of the fact that Solomon Islands does not produce, use, distribute, or stockpile cluster munitions. Nor were cluster munitions used in the country during World War II. Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong on that. This may have led to a lack of urgency to be a party to the Convention. However, Solomon Islands ratified the Anti-Personal Mine Ban Convention in 1999. Its second 
Article 7 report was submitted in 2017, but an accurate record of um, UXOs that were disposed of safely only began in 2011. The 2017 Article 7 report shows that 30,000 items of unexploded ordinances, um, including not, uh, 79 anti-personal mines from the Second World War, were safely disposed of by the um, Explosive Ordinance Disposal Team of the Royal Solomon Islands Police Force. From this perspective, the anti-personal mines ban is um, somewhat more relevant to Solomon Islands. World War II UXOs continue to pose a threat to people and the environment. The humanitarian need remain to offer a safe environment, free of unexploded ordinances, to ensure people garden freely, cook outdoors freely without the fear of an explosion. It is worth mentioning that Solomon Islands also um, does not have a registry of victims of World War II UXOs. Those who were injured and those who lost their lives is unknown. Having said that, it is important to note the progress that has been made so far by the national government. Operation Render Safe, the Gold, uh, Golden West Humanitarian Foundation, who work in co collaboration with the Royal Solomon Islands Police Force EOD team in Honiara. On a regional level, the Pacific Islands Forum has also taken steps to address the security threats posed by UXOs in member countries. Other panel members will be in a better position to speak on that. However, as time passes, the threat posed by World War II UXO increases. As a local historian of World War II histories, it is frustrating to see that World War II, a war that is um, arguably foreign in nature, continue to take the lives of young Solomon Islanders. These are the future of the country. Engaging in large-scale UXO clearance is a costly exercise for a country like Solomon Islands, and this begs the urgency to ratify the Convention on Plastomunation. To potentially benefit from the Convention's systematic leadership in USO, UXO clearance, it is also important to stress that since World War II UXO fall on the outside of the classification of cluster munitions, it raises the question of prioritization. If Solomon Islands be becomes a signatory to the Convention of Cluster Munition, will it be given an equal priority um, as members of the Convention who have cluster munitions to deal with its problem of World War II UXOs? Perhaps that is a question that the panel will be in a much better position to deliberate on. But with that, I thank you so much for your time and I look forward to um, a very fruitful discussion. Thank you. I think, you know, Annie's shared both personal, um, I guess, experience there related to this issue, but also really opened up the conversation, I think, uh, with some of her comments uh, and things to think about uh, throughout our panel discussion and also in considering this issue. Um, and so I guess now I will open up our live panel uh, to continue that conversation. Um, so we're going to go through uh, some short presentations from the other panelists and then there'll be an opportunity to ask questions and have more of an interactive discussion. So um, first speaking, we have 
uh, Kalisiana Thin, who is the legal advisor with the ICRC's advisory services on IHL and has worked on implementation and accessing to IHL treaties in the Pacific from 2008 to 2011. Kalisiana is currently based in Geneva and oversees either ICRC's work to support the adoption and domestic implementation of weapons treaties. So now I'm going to hand over to her and just bring up some slides, hopefully. Thanks very much, Matilda. And I think that uh, Annie's presentation has really um, set the groundwork uh, for us uh, to, to discuss um, this important issue. Um, as she says, um, not so much of a problem of cluster munitions as such in the Pacific, but uh, certainly a huge problem still of unexploded remnants of war um, and indeed uh, firearms and other explosive devices. And so I think that um, in that context, um, this is this is a timely discussion to be talking about uh, additional steps that be, can be taken by Pacific Island um, countries uh, in relation to uh, the Cluster Munitions Convention. Um, so uh, just uh, very briefly, um, the, I'll turn in a moment to uh, some of the tools that uh, ICRC has um, to support uh, ratification and implementation of uh, the um, Cluster Munitions Convention. But I also want to highlight that we have uh, our um, regional legal advisor, Clementine Rendell, um, who is uh, covering the Pacific um, online. And also at the la on my last slide, I'll give uh, her contact details as well as my own in case uh, anyone wants to um, get in touch with her about actually um, practically uh, going about ratification and implementation of uh, this Im important convention. Um, so I think that uh, we really, as I said, we've had a really good uh, introduction from Annie. Um, Palau is the only cluster munition affected Pacific country as far as uh, we're aware. Um, and it is a party already to the CCM. Um, but there are other countries, of course, as I said, that are um, affected by explosive remnants. Um, but very few states parties actually to the Cluster Munitions Convention, which I think is why it's so important to be talking about this today. Um, next slide, please. So in fact, um, not uh, not counting the, the two biggest uh, red <laughs> dots on the map there, um, but uh, so not counting Australia and New Zealand, um, but uh, in general, it's, it's um, quite surprising that there are so few ratifications of the Cluster Missions Convention in the Pacific, because in fact, we have a very strong adoption of IHL treaties um, in the Pacific. And I should really start by saying that for the ICRC, as a humanitarian organization, we really consider that the Cluster Munitions Convention is a humanitarian convention. It's an international humanitarian law convention. It's really about protecting victims um, and uh, um, making sure that uh, countries are prepared um, both for peacetime and wartime use of uh, various uh, munitions and weapons. Um, so that's why we, we promote it uh, very strongly. Um, and uh, indeed, the Pacific Islands uh, countries have been very supportive of IHL treaties, recognizing the historical uh, background that they have um, with, uh, with war. Um, so in fact, uh, 11 out of 14 countries have ratified the Biological Weapons Convention, um, the Anti-Personnel Mine Ban Convention. Um, we're starting to get to that point. We've got nine out of 14 uh, Pacific Island countries that have uh, ratified the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Um, and in fact, all of the Pacific Island countries have ratified the Chemical Weapons Convention. So um, everyone's doing very well. And so it's just a bit surprising that this is a standout um, convention. 
Um, and as I'll go through, there are some challenges uh, that we've identified, but um, I think uh, many of them can uh, be overcome. Um, so just very briefly, why ratify? Well, um, as we've seen, there are still a lot of unexploded remnants of war in the Pacific, but more broadly across the world, there are um, there are huge use still, unfortunately, of cluster munitions and increasing uh, use, in fact. Um, so the cluster munition monitor recorded 286 uh, new cluster munition casualties in 2019, and that was a 92% increase compared to um, 2018. Um, and civilians accounted for 99% of the casualties um, in that regard. So it really, um, as I said, for us, the Cluster Munitions Convention is about um, ridding the world of cluster munitions and really making um, it much safer for civilians to go about their, um, their livelihoods, uh, both during and uh, at the end of conflict. Um, I also highlight uh, at the end here the, that ratification of international humanitarian law treaties is one of the key pillars of the uh, IHL resolution of the last international conference of the Red Cross and Red Crescent. Um, that uh, resolution was entitled Bringing IHL Home and it was really focused in on what states can do uh, domestically to support international humanitarian law. So ratification of the Cluster Munitions Convention would tie in nicely to that resolution and uh, there was very strong support um, to the International Conference of the Red Cross and Red Crescent from Pacific Island countries. So I do uh, highlight that here. Uh, next slide, please. Um, indeed, there are some challenges. Um, so um, there, as I said, uh, generally there's ex um, support for IHL, um, but there is the concern about uh, needing new laws, um, needing technical and legal assistance to implement the treaty. Um, and as I said, ICRC and others uh, on this panel and uh, other organizations as well can support with uh, the technical and legal assistance. Um, so for, from ICRC's perspective, um, on the next slide you'll see, and I think we can share the links as well, um, that we have a model law which is very easy to uh, incorporate, um, particularly into a common law country such as uh, Pacific Island countries uh, um, predominantly are. Um, we also have a fact sheet about what is the Cluster Munitions Convention, really setting it out very uh, simply, which uh, we find is quite useful for uh, engagement with parliamentarians, for example. Um, if a country is not keen to use a model law, then there's a checklist as very simply um, about four pages, what do you actually need to have in place in your legislation um, to be able to implement the convention? And we also have a ratification kit. So we have model wording um, so that you can basically download uh, that model wording, uh, change the country name and, and uh, attach the relevant signatures and send it off um, to the depository. Um, there has been, I'll just finally mention a concern uh, that has been raised uh, in relation to many other treaties as well. And that is um, in relation to um, the finance. Um, and uh, there, I would say that, um, in fact, from our understanding, um, it really would cost uh, probably less than 50 US dollars for each Pacific Island country to join the convention. So that shouldn't be a concern as well, um, hopefully. So I'll leave it there and pass on to other experts. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kalisiana. And I think it was really great highlighting the um, uh, great history of engagement with IHL treaties we've seen in the Pacific and that whilst there are some maybe challenges in relation to this particular convention, there's also a lot of fantastic support available, which you outlined. And I'm sure, as you say, we can make those uh, links and things available to people after the event. 
Uh, now, though, um, I will pass to uh, Ian Mansfield. And so Ian has over 30 years of experience in mine action at, uh, from the field level and headquarters, as well as cult consultancy in more recent years, including a series of workshops uh, which uh, he conducted in the Pacific on UXO plans, standards and national legislation. Uh, so this might tie into some of the, the comments that Annie made and I suppose uh, looking forward at how this issue um, interplays with the convention. So I'll now hand it over to you, Ian. Good evening. Um, I'm sitting in Canberra, so we're getting close to evening here. I'd just like to discuss some of the practical aspects of Pacific countries joining the Cluster Munitions Convention and build on what Feliciana from ICRC just told us. So the next slide. As we heard from Feliciana, the main issue is unexploded ordnance from World War II over 75 years ago. And as she outlined, there are eight countries in the Pacific that are affected by World War II munitions. Other than Palau, Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands, these countries have little or no capacity basically to deal with the UXO. So in this talk, I'm just going to look quickly at some of the obstacles to that. Next slide, please. At the political level, the issue of UXO and conventions got some traction at a Pacific Islands Leaders Forum in Auckland in 2011. And the next slide, you'll see the issues that they addressed and the statement that they made. So at the end of that summit, they expressed their concern about the ongoing presence of UXO, that it was a human security problem, threat to public health and safety, and also a serious obstacle to development. And then they welcomed at the time the Pacific Regional UXO Strategy and requested assistance from international agencies. So on the next slide, please. So in 2012, the Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat issued a regional UXO strategy. And this was a very good document it outlined what the Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat should do at a regional level and also gave advice to the UXO affected countries on how to address the UXO threat. And this strategy mentions the conventions, the Mine Vane Convention and the Cluster Munition Convention. And in fact, one of the strategic objectives was to advocate for membership of those conventions. There were some follow up regional meetings, one in Palau in 2012, another in Brisbane that looked at operalization of this strategy and also to encourage joining conventions. There was another meeting in Auckland in 2018. This was more a small arms and light weapons meeting, but it did address the issue of cluster munition convention. And really around 2015, this all lost a bit of momentum. The Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat lost the funding for the post they had and a number of regional meetings that were planned got canceled. Um, myself, I was engaged as a consultant to do some work helping countries to address it, things like legislation, national policies, plans, and so on. So I held, I've held probably 12 workshops in the countries listed over the last couple of years. The next slide, please. So getting to the crux of the issue, some of the practical considerations that I found. In these workshops, they weren't advocacy workshops, but the, the question of conventions came up. Um, my understanding is that there are no cluster munitions in Pacific countries and the recent cluster munition convention didn't list any cluster affected countries in the Pacific. So it's not a high priority for them. There are so many other competing issues in these countries like climate change, rising sea level, protection of fisheries, security of borders and so on, that really cluster munitions are just not 
a high priority for them. I found there's a fairly low level of knowledge about awareness of cluster munitions and an absence of political will. There have been these regional workshops. And as Kalisiana said, there is divided, but normally it's the director level, permanent secretary level that attends them, not the political ministers and so on. And so there's not a political push for anything to happen. I found most of the ministries and the Pacific Islands Forum Secretary have limited capacity, staff capacity to deal with this. And there's usually a high changeover of staff. It's also difficult to arrange regional activities. We sort of say of the Pacific region, but it's vast, you know, and I know some of these workshops I've been to, it's taken people two days to get there. So having face-to-face -face meetings and passing on information is, is not easy. And in this time of COVID, I guess travel is difficult, even though we have facilities like Zoom. Um, the cost benefit aspect. Every time I've raised the conventions, they ask, what's the cost? And as we heard, the cost is not great, 50 to $100 to join, but there's also staff cost and then the time to pass new legislation and so on. And the benefit, they don't see much. If, if the UXO affected, maybe they'll get some additional funding, but I haven't seen great evidence of this. And if they're not cluster affected, then they don't see any benefit of joining. And there's a genuine reluctance to commit if they can't meet the obligations. You know, if they're not just signing a, a document without consideration and taking it seriously that they need to pass legislation, they need to report regularly and so on. So what are some of the solutions? I think we have to engage at the political level. The Mind Bank Convention has done this well. They had a special envoy, Prince Mirrod of Jordan. He was very active and traveled widely and he could engage at prime minister, minister level quite easily. Perhaps identify a champion country. Um, Palau took on this role with the Mind Bank Convention, hosted the regional meetings and were active in the region. Demonstrate that it may increase assistance and, and try and encourage other members of the convention to assist if people do sign up. And then assistance, as we've heard from the ICRC, the, the different packages they have and model legislation and so on to help them prepare. But a couple of funny thoughts, maybe waive any costs involved in joining a convention and perhaps establish a default reporting system. So it doesn't show that they haven't reported, just if there's nothing to say, give them a tick, say, yes, we've reported this year and it looks like they're active members. So that's it from me. Um, and I'm happy to take any questions at the end of the session. Thank you. Great, thank you, Ian, and for, I guess, highlighting some of those challenges at the practical level that you've come across in your work in the Pacific. I think um, now we're going to move on to Charlotte, uh, Charlotte Skirton, who's based in Geneva currently at the New Zealand Permanent Mission. Um, I also just want to thank Charlotte for the work she did in uh, promoting this event as well. Uh, and so the New, uh, New Zealand is currently the Conventional Cluster Munitions Coordinator for Article 9. Uh, as well, which uh, Charlotte will be speaking to a bit in her presentation. So I will hand it over to you and just pull up some slides as well. Um, and, and greetings everyone, or as we say in New Zealand, kia ora. Um, and yeah, thanks to you and also to the rest of the team at SafeGround for organising today's side event. Um, Aotearoa New Zealand is a really long-time supporter of the Convention on Cluster Munitions, so it's a real pleasure to be involved. Um, my presentation today will, will, cover, will cover three key topics. First, the importance of this convention uh, to New Zealand, 
its national and as well as its national implementation and transparency obligations. So in terms of why the convention is so important to Aotearoa New Zealand, um, this is really just simply because we believe that cluster munitions cause unacceptable harm and should be banned. Um, they cause widespread harm on impact and they remain dangerous, killing and injuring civilians long after conflict has ended. Of, of the um, recorded cluster munition casualties, about one third are children and 60% are injured while undertaking normal activities, as we very sadly heard earlier um, from Annie. Um, and this is why we urge those states that have not ratified the Convention on Cluster Munitions to do so. We're really proud that the Convention has 110 states parties and 13 additional signatories. Um, and we're especially proud that Nui is one of the newest state parties to the Convention, um, joining other Pacific Island countries, Cook Islands, Fiji, Nauru, Palau and Samoa, as well as New Zealand and Australia. Um, it is clear, however, that much work does remain to be done um, to achieve our shared goal of universalising our convention and making its norm truly universal. So we look to all regions, including our own, the Pacific, to help achieve this goal. Um, just on the next slide, um, uh, I just wanted to cover why um, implementation is so, is so important. Obviously, New Zealand believes that both universalisation and implementation are uh, essential to achieving the fundamental purpose of the Convention, which is a fully global taboo against the possession, use or proliferation of cluster munitions. And um, as Matilda said, New Zealand served on the Convention's Coordination Committee since 2011 in the role of National Implementation Measures Coordinator. So based on our experience in this role, I just wanted to briefly outline why national implementation is so important what exactly is required of states parties and the tools that are available to assist them. Um, although I know Kelisian has um, helpfully already touched upon some of these um, as well. Um, so first, why national implementation is so important. Um, I guess fundamentally, once a country has joined the convention, um, it is obliged to implement its provisions domestically. And um, as Ian said, this translation of international obligations into domestic ones is crucial. For the credibility of the convention, there can't be a gap between what states say they are doing on the international stage and what they are doing domestically. And we also believe that the process of drafting, coordinating and enacting national law can play an important role in focusing attention of national authorities on the state parties' treaty obligations. It also helps in pro promoting a review of existing national legislation and practice, including military manuals. And finally, um, national implementation strengthens a broad understanding among the general public, the military and at the highest um, levels of government of the security benefits of maintaining a high standard of compliance with international humanitarian law, including the new rule um, under IHL set out by our convention that defends civilian populations from the unacceptable and indiscriminate harm caused by cluster munitions. So in terms of how the Convention requires us to implement its provisions in domestic law, Article 9 is, is the cornerstone of the Convention on this and the text of that article is set out in the slide. This article isn't pre prescriptive about how states' parties should give effect to its legal obligations. Um, and this 
is a recognition of the many different legal and administrative systems that, is, that exist around the world. Um, in some countries, systems don't actually require specific implementing legislation to give effect to the conventions domestically, and others still um, might consider that their existing laws are, are sufficient to implement the convention's provisions. Um, and that's absolutely fine. But the point here is around transparency and, and, and just understanding of how um, the convention is being implemented domestically. Um, and so in terms of timing for new states parties, one of the key things we've learned is that the groundwork for implementation of the treaty is best laid during the ratification process. Um, during that stage, political interest is high and legislative attention is already being turned to the treaty, that states are best able to determine the institutional and legal framework needed to implement the convention. And I also wanted to provide um, a brief overview of some of the tools that are available to help states implement the convention. We're really well aware, as others have already um, underlined, that some states face challenges in taking the necessary steps to implement the convention domestically. Um, for many states parties, um, Competing priorities, resource constraints, and lengthy domestic procedures are some of the barriers to the enactment of legislation. So in light of those challenges, we've, we and others have developed a number of tools to assist states parties in treaty implementation. The ICRC um, representative, Kalesiana, has already outlined the fantastic resources that the ICRC has produced, including a checklist and a comprehensive model legislation um, developed mostly to focus on common law countries. Um, and that's uh, all available on the CCM website. Um, New Zealand has also developed model legislation. It's, it's simplified and it is for states not possessing cluster munitions or contaminated by them like New Zealand. Um, this is also available on the CCM website. And we really have prepared this legislation with the circumstances of our own neighbourhood in mind. Um, our country, like most of our Pacific Island neighbours, has never produced or possessed cluster munitions, and we're fortunate enough not to be contaminated by them. So we prepared the, this legislation in response to a request of small states who felt that other legislative models and precedents might cater more for larger countries in different circumstances to their own, notably those that are affected by cluster munitions. And New Zealand is also working on a short video for the Cluster Munitions website at, the, at present um, that will provide key information on national legislation, and national implementation rather. Um, finally, just wanted to touch on uh, one last uh, key obligation, which is closely related um, to implementation, and that is national reporting. So this is an important transparency aspect under the convention and is set out in Article seven um, which I've replicated on the slide. So transparency reporting is another key obligation under the convention which is a vital indicator of its overall health. Um, it establishes a benchmark against which um, implementation process can be measured and evaluated and it provides states parties with a practical tool for requesting and providing requisite assistance and cooperation in implementing the convention. Um, reporting demonstrates that efforts applied by state parties in fulfilling their obligations and it affords them an opportunity to share updates on their progress and communicate any challenges that they may be facing in complying with obligations under the convention. So there are recommended reporting web uh, templates on the UN and ISU websites 
and it is important to complete an initial report after joining the convention so that your country's situation with respect to cluster munitions is clear. But we understand, and Ian touched on this as well, that filing annual reports each year can be particularly onerous for some smaller states, particularly in unusual cases where they need to be approved at the political level. And that's why we've um, confirmed with the Implementation Support Unit that they will accept by email or note verbal a message that um, the national situation of a Pacific Island country in respect of the convention remains unchanged or alternatively that notes any changes. So that kind of message will be regarded as fulfilling the state's annual reporting requirements under Article 7 of the CCM. We've um, done our best to communicate that to our Pacific Island colleagues and we hope that that makes the reporting burden easier um, because we are aware it is an issue for some. If you do need other help with reporting, the Coordinator on Transparency Measures, um, Iraq, or the ever helpful staff at the Implementation Support Unit will be happy to provide advice. And New Zealand is always happy to share our reporting experience as a country that's fortunate not to have been affected by cluster munitions with others in our region. Uh, many thanks. I'm quite conscious I've gone over time, so I'll leave it there. Thanks, Matilda. Great. Thank you so much, Charlotte. I think the national implementation uh, aspect is obviously a really integral part to the Convention on Cluster Munitions, so it's really great to have that breakdown as part of this conversation. Uh, now we're going to be moving on to our final speaker on the panel, which is Jeannie Wills. So Jeannie is a researcher in Safe Ground's Pacific Outreach Project, which explores legacy weapon contamination in the Pacific, the impacts of explosive remnants of war, and is currently working on the universalization of the CCM in tandem with this and um, I suppose the interplay of these issues. So I'll pass on to Jeannie now. Uh... Thanks, Matilda. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional, traditional owners and custodians of the land on which I'm presenting to you all today, uh, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. Um, I also pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Um, it's a real uh, pleasure to be on this panel today. Um, I'll be reinforcing some of the points that the other panellists have already um, covered, as well as presenting some of the work Safe Ground is currently doing. Um, so we're trying to understand how the Pacific may consider the Convention on Cluster Munitions in light of challenges with explosive remnants of war. Um, so a lot of the next slide has been covered by the other panellists. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to reinforce that um, two have ratified the CCM and seven have ratified the Mine Ban Treaty. And like others, we would like to see more um, Pacific Island nations sign and ratify the CCM. And we've sought to we've sought to understand what the benefits the Pacific has to get has to gain has gained to date from the um, international treaty framework. So there is a uh, there is a um, connection between the consequences of these of these weapons. So we're looking at the foundational aspects of Pacific Islands engagement with the treaty systems. And our research is highlighting that there is a lack of comprehensive surveys done to show the extent of the problem. And that could be a barrier uh, to join the CCM. And as well, there's only been limited clearance efforts to date, like the other panelists have, have mentioned, uh, with the exception of Palau and Honiara. Um, so this graph, um, this graph is here to demonstrate the potential scope of the issue in comparison to Laos. Um, 
so the data used for Lao has been taken from the landmine and cluster munitions monitor and the data taken from the Solomon Islands is from qualitative uh, sources in the victim assistance and mine clearance areas in the Solomon Islands. Um, so as some of you know and have mentioned, there are frustrations in um, underreporting which make information difficult to find. So we've taken the average um, fatality rate for the Solomon Islands and extrapolated it over these um, 10 years. And clearly the fatalities in Laos per year have, um, have fluctuated, but they show a general downwards trend. Um, and by contrast, um, using, this, using this figure, um, I guess they're alarming, alarming figures for the Solomon Islands. It does show that fatality rates are comparable, which is shocking because of the size and population of the two countries. Um, could I get the next slide, please? Thank you. Um, so this set of data is taken entirely from the Landmine and Cluster Munitions Monitor. And um, as mentioned before, the um, missing data for the Solomon Islands, I've just recorded a zero. Um, so yeah, if we take a look at the spending on mine action over the same time period, um, you can see a clear difference. So the average yearly spending towards mine action in Laos per capita was at about um, $5.14. Um, and the spending per capita in the Solomon Islands was at about uh, 64 cents per capita. So can I get the next slide, please? Um, so we do understand that Laos is a bad case and we have picked a high category, um, which is why we included some more trends um, on a more global scale. Um, as well as Pacific, as well as some Pacific statistics. Um, this graph shows that while Laos is well funded compared to the world, um, the Solomon Islands is well funded in compared to the in comparison to the Pacific region. Um, so hopefully this shows the scope, the, the potential scope of the issue that we are that the Solomon, um, that the Pacific region are facing. Um, and again, we break down the average of yearly funding per capita and um, the Pacific region. Uh, the Pacific region or affected Pacific states received about eight times less per capita uh, than the globe. So even though the scale and severity of the problem is evident in the Pacific, um, there is a dilemma that the unexploded ordinance do not technically fall under specific weapons of the treaty frameworks. Um, so we do wonder if, if this dilemma affects the decision-making or prioritization re um, regarding joining the convention. Um, and I'd like to finish off by saying um, this is a part of uh, Safe Ground's ongoing project. So we, we do want to find stakeholders and welcome further engagement and collaboration in the future um, to gain a further insight into this issue. Uh, thank you. Great. Thank you so much, Jean. I think some of that um, data speaks to some of the points that have been made uh, throughout the panel discussion we just had. And um, I guess it's something really to consider how it might be able to be addressed by, you know, the international community when we're thinking about um, cluster munition, the, cluster, the conventional cluster munitions and engagement and universe, universalization in Pacific nations, particularly those affected by UXO. Um, and I suppose this sort of um, now gets us to the end of the specific panel presentations. And we wanted to be able to open the floor to our questions and some discussion. So uh, there's an option if you wish to pose a question to uh, just put it in the chat or alternatively, you can use the raise hand function and I'll just try and best moderate 
um, raised hands as they as they come, and uh, then we'll allow the panelists to sort of respond. So, is there any um, questions that anybody wanted to pose at this point? Um, and I'm also looking at the time and conscious that some people probably have the uh, review conference to also move on with very shortly. So I might just ask if um, all of the panelists could perhaps just in closing maybe uh, one comment or thought um, in regards to the discussion we've had today, something to take away or to take note of perhaps in the future to maybe overcome some of the challenges uh, that have been spoken about. Thanks very much, Matilda. Um, and thanks very much to the other panelists and thanks to everyone for joining today as well. Um, I just think from uh, from ICRC's side, um, just a, a reminder of the importance of this convention. I mean, we're all here anyway um, for the review conference, um, so we're all uh, aware of that. Um, but um, just a, um, a call to Pacific Island countries and to any other countries as well that are not a party to the convention to, to join um, and to offer support from ICRC to, to, to do so and also to support uh, implementation. So do feel free to be in touch if there are any countries uh, listening in uh, who would like to uh, go about ratification and implementation. Maybe I'll jump in next unless you're about to, Ian. Um, yeah, just to, to really agree with um, what Kalesiana said and, and just to acknowledge that we, we really do appreciate the significant resource constraints um, lots of countries are, are facing at the moment, particularly in, in the Pacific region. Um, but um, there are many, many resources out there, and we're, we're very happy to also provide, you know, one-on-one -on -one bespoke advice um, from the coordination committee or from the implementation support unit. So please don't hesitate to, to reach out. I see we've got a, a hand up as well from Juan, which is very exciting. Yeah, Ian, go ahead, and then we'll perhaps take um, Juan's question. Yeah, in Mine Action globally, there's about 35 donors, but in the Pacific, the only people funding work there are the US, Japan to a limited extent, Australia and New Zealand. So I think if we encourage countries to join this convention, particularly those that are UXO affected, that they do get some benefit and that donor countries who are members of the convention see it and, and reward the Pacific states if they do sign up. Thank you. Uh, on behalf of Safe Ground, um, I just want to reinforce that we're yeah, trying to understand how the Pacific may consider the CCM um, and what barriers there might be to signing the CCM in light of the challenges with explosive remnants of war. And we do want, like like I said, I do we do want to encourage collaboration. So please do reach out if you have any new insights or information for us. Great, thank you everyone from the panel. And now we will um, go to uh, Juan, he's got his um, hand up. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, Matilda. Um, I'm Juan Manglano. I'm working in the Spanish mission here in Geneva and uh, dealing with disarmament. And Spain will um, be chosen um, co-coordinator on universalization either today or tomorrow. I'm not sure about the, the schedule for that. Um, and that's why I wanted to take the floor just to thank all the panelists for the very interesting uh, comments and and and. Uh, pieces of advice and pieces of information. Everything is well noted uh, in my notebook. We have um, a lot of homework to do um, in the following two years. Spin will be um, co-coordinating together with Philippines first, and then we will see with who on universalization. 
I've taken note of all the challenges you've, all the panelists have mentioned. And um, well, I remain at your full disposal and, and I look forward to, co to cooperating with all of you and um, to keep um, and to continue all the work and all the efforts done by, by uh, your organizations and, 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 and countries. Um, so thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Juan, for that um, comment and your message there. We look forward to being able to collaborate with you. Um, so I don't see any other hands up. And so we've sort of heard from our panelists who I want to thank once again for being part of today's side event and providing all of your different uh, insights. And then I'd like to thank also everyone for tuning in uh, and attending today. And we hope that this is a start of a conversation that we will be able to continue and follow up on um, in you know the coming months. So thank you very much, everyone, uh, for attending. And uh, I hope you have a good day or evening, depending on where you are. <laughs>